What it do, baby? What it do? What's up, everybody? How you doing today? I believe we have some breaking news from last night to discuss this morning. So I guess it's no longer breaking news, but it is the big political story of the week. Donald Trump's taxes have been released. We're going to dive into it. There is quite a bit to say. Um, as we move along today, I have some more stuff on Amy Coney Barrett. So I'll give you uh, some information about her record, which is going to be this kind of stuff is largely going to be ignored in the national dialogue. And it's a shame because I feel like this is probably the worst part of her record. There will be, you know, a, a giant focus on the social issues, but there's, they're going to disregard economic issues. Well, we're going to dive into the economic issues and credit to David Sirota for giving us the information and combing through the record. Um, Bill Maher is back to voter shame, everybody. We have uh, Ron Paul had a medical emergency while on air. That was a tough thing to watch. Um, Then later on, I have to do the Dr. Fauci and Rand Paul fight. I know this happened a while ago. I also have to do the conversation about what's going to happen with Trump if he loses the peaceful transition comments he made, I'm going to, I'll give you guys my take on that. And then later, later on in the show, Michelle Bachman is back and she's gives us some poignant election analysis. So we'll discuss that as well. Um, all right. We're going to kick it off with the thing that everybody's talking about. And it makes sense that they're talking about it. Uh, the Trump tax bombshell. So here we go. Giant report from the New York Times dropped yesterday on Trump's taxes. 
you know, I don't know how they got the information, but as I was discussing yesterday, there's got to be a zillion people who hate Trump in his inner circle because he routinely throws everybody else under the bus. So I don't know why he would expect loyalty from other people around him because they know how he rolls. So, you know, is there some rogue actor who handles his financials? Possibly. I mean, just look at the fact that he threw Michael Cohen under the bus, who knows where all the bodies are buried. And so now, of course, Cohen, in return, is spilling the beans on everything involving Trump. And it's kind of amazing that he's not, like, more careful with how he handles this stuff, because, of course, there's going to be leaks when you show zero loyalty to anybody else. They're going to return that favor. So here we are. Somebody leaked his tax returns, and the New York Times reported on them. And here's the bombshell information. Trump reportedly paid just $750 in federal taxes in 2016 and 2017, and nothing, nothing in 10 of the past 15 years. Nothing. Nothing. Okay, so here's some of the other things that we learned. Trump has hundreds of millions of dollars in debt that's coming due. Hundreds of millions, and it's coming due. That's a big deal. He's also still engaged in a decade-long dispute with the IRS over a $72.9 million tax refund that he claimed after reporting business losses. So he could be on the hook for more than $100 million if he loses this fight with the IRS. That's on top of the hundreds of millions of dollars in debt that's coming due. Now, another, you know, part of this, which people are pointing to, there was a line in the New York Times piece that said there were no, you know, previously unknown ties to Russia. So Russiagate kind of up in smoke, just like with the Mueller report. Um, but really, that's a side point. You already know that, knew that. I already knew that. There's a lot of damning stuff in here. It just obviously has nothing to do with Russia. So here's some more information. Trump Organization tax records also show, according to the Times, that between 2018 and 20, uh, excuse me, 2010 and 2018, it wrote off around $26 million in unexplained consulting fees. The consulting fees uh, claimed as tax deductions for hotel projects in Vancouver and Hawaii matched the payments Ivanka Trump reported, more than $747,600. From a consulting company she co-owned, according to the Times. Also revealed in Sunday's report was at least the was the at least partial scope of Trump's overseas dealings, long a target of government ethics organizations due to concerns that foreign investors could seek to curry favor with the president through his businesses. At least $73 million was made abroad by the Trump Organization during the first half of Trump's term, according to the documents. The Times reports that while Trump paid just $750 in income taxes in the U.S. in 2017, Trump or his companies paid more taxes in other countries, including $15,598 in Panama, $145,400 in India, and $156,824 in the Philippines. So, now, 
the discourse around this, what I'm seeing on Twitter and elsewhere is, oh, my God, he's like such a shitty businessman, bro. He made no money. <laughs> what a loser. What a loser. Fake billionaire. Not a good businessman. Got him. Got him. Like, that's the, that's the bulk of the discourse. Um, the, the slightly upgraded version of the discourse is people are saying, hey, this shows that wealthy people can evade taxes as a matter of standard operating procedure. And Bernie made the point that, you know, this is effectively what corporate socialism looks like. That, you know, if you're a plumber who makes 40 grand a year, you're effectively paying way more in taxes than a guy who on paper is a multi-billionaire. So that's a problem. The system is rigged to benefit corporations and billionaires and to screw working people. There's another uh, IRS bombshell that just came out today about how the most heavily audited areas are poor areas with disproportionately with people of color. So the IRS is like harassing poor people of color, and they're the ones who are getting audited the most. They're the ones who are getting the books thrown at them. And of course, corporations and billionaires, they largely get away because of political connections and because they've rigged the tax code. Remember, it was, I think 2018 was the first year that effectively billionaires paid a lower tax rate than the working class. That was a big story that came out. Effectively, billionaires paid a lower tax rate than the working class. Isn't that something? Well, now you see. This is what's really going on. This is just like when we see, you know, corporations have, some corporations have done their accounting tricks. I think General Electric was one of them. Maybe Honeywell was another. And they have a 0% tax rate. Others find a way to literally have a negative tax rate, which means they're getting a net subsidy, even though they're making tremendous amounts of profit. So this is really something. Now, those are probably the two biggest claims and biggest arguments and biggest attacks on Trump that are dominating the discourse. I don't think that those are the real takeaways. I think that, you know, the Bernie point is legit and it's a fair point to make, but I don't even think that's the biggest takeaway. To me, the, the biggest bombshell or bombshells, I should say, that I see in this report made over $70 million from foreign governments and foreign investors as president. And this doesn't even include the last two years. It's only 2016 and 2017. It doesn't show 2018 and 2019. Over $70 million from foreign governments and foreign investors. Okay, that is like, there's never been a clear violation of the emoluments clause of the Constitution. A president cannot take money from foreign governments. Why? Because then they're likely to act in the interests of those governments. That's what's going to happen. If you take a lot of money from Saudi Arabia or Israel or whoever it may be, you're going to do their bidding. And of course, we know he has. Multi-billion dollar weapons deal to Saudi Arabia as they're doing a genocide in Yemen. All while he's taking Saudi money? Are you kidding me? This is as corrupt as it gets. Jimmy Carter had to sell his peanut farm because the argument was, hey, it is theoretically possible that foreign governments might give you money through your peanut farm, so you got to sell it. It was just the appearance of impropriety and corruption, and he sold it. With Trump, he's got all these international businesses 
took over $70 million from foreign governments and foreign investors in his first two years. And this is not the cornerstone of the argument that we're making. It should be. This is the definition of corruption. Now, the other point is, as a result of that, and as a result of owing hundreds of millions of dollars in the debt coming due, he is a national security threat. Because again, you're going to work in the interests of all these foreign governments and foreign investors. And you're not necessarily going to put what's good for the American people front and center. So th those are the biggest takeaways. And then the other biggest takeaway would be the self-dealing with his family. Listen, if you write off millions of dollars in consulting fees, and then it turns out you're just cutting a check to Ivanka for that amount of money and pretending like she's doing consulting for you, that is just brazenly cheating on your taxes. That's what that is, brazenly. Like, there are corporations and wealthy people who are smart enough to exploit all of the loopholes and do it in a way that's still technically in accordance with the law, even though it's unethical. What it looks like Trump did here is beyond that. It looks like he's just lazy and he's a moron and he's like, I don't care. I'll get away with it anyway, so I'll just violate tax law, write off millions of dollars to my daughter and pretend it's a consulting fee and take a deduction for that? No, 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 no. Now, I, I need you to do the intellectual exercise. Imagine for a second, this was the Clintons. What would the Republicans say? This exact same story, exact same facts, but the Clintons. So you have Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton writing off tens of millions of dollars in consulting fees in their taxes and just giving that money to Chelsea. Everybody would be like, oh, that is like the most obvious corruption I've ever seen in my entire life. Duh. But with Trump, it's different? No, 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 it's not different. And by the way, this isn't me saying that there isn't similar stuff out there on the Clintons. We all know how corrupt the Clinton Foundation was, of course. But Trump is doing the same thing between taking money from foreign governments and foreign investors as president, over $70 million, writing, giving money and pretending it's a consulting fee to his daughter. These are the biggest takeaways, is that he's as corrupt as it gets. So it's not... For the love of God, do not go all in on like the, oh, he's a really shitty businessman and he made no money. Don't do that. And unfortunately, that is what's dominating the discourse because that is what was trending on Twitter, like fake billionaire or whatever. Oh, God. You don't get don't, – don't focus on the wrong thing and make him relatable when – if the argument is, oh, my God, you're in tremendous debt, a lot of Americans are in debt. They're going to be like, yeah, so he's struggling too? I guess he's more relatable now. Don't do that. Don't do the, oh, bad businessman. You need to focus on the over $70 million taken from foreign governments and foreign investors. That's corruption 101. That violates the emoluments clause. He's going to work in the interests of these foreign billionaires and foreign countries and focus on the self-dealing with the family. This is the real takeaway. So, I mean, it really is, it really is crazy, right, that – how could you pay no taxes when you have the net worth that he does? No taxes, 10 out of 15 years, and the rest of the time paying more? So it really is true. Like plumbers, construction workers, teachers, everybody's paying more taxes than Trump. And more broadly, you know, 70% of unpaid taxes, the 1% is responsible for. So, like, this is a thing. This is a thing. These are the freeloaders. These are the, are the looters. These are the looters.
And um, will this make a dent? That I have no idea. I really don't, because it depends on how the arguments are framed, how persistent the Democrats are in continuing to talk about this and driving the narrative home. Um, and then you know as well as I do that the, Demo- the Democrats suck at this stuff. So who knows whether or not this will stick. Um, but this is a big deal. I think this is a big deal objectively, objectively. In classic Trump fashion, he might swat it aside and move forward and, and get away with it. Um, but, you know, it should go without saying that nobody, Democrat or Republican, should want a president in office who has taken over $70 million from foreign governments and foreign investors and is just casually cheating on their taxes by giving the money to their daughter and pretending it's a consulting fee. This is really, really, really corrupt. And so I hope that's the dominant narrative. I won't hold my breath, but this is crazy. It is crazy. Okay. Okay, let's move on. We're going to talk about The Rock. So Joe Biden and Kamala Harris got arguably their biggest endorsement yet. Hmm. It's from The Rock. Take a look. with your father, you know, this idea of respect and, and earning respect that, 
our parents have taught us. My dad always said, respect is given when it's earned. Uh, the question I have is, how will the both of you earn the respect of all the American people once you're in that White House? By doing what we say we're going to do, by keeping our word, by leveling with the American people, by taking responsibility. When we fail, acknowledge it. We're not going to be perfect, to be, but take responsibility. Say, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I believe. And tell the truth. That sounds so basic. But the American people are strong. They're tough. They can take anything if you level with them and tell the truth. And one of the ways we're going to do it is demonstrate we mean what we say. Our administration, DJ, is going to look like America. It's going to be representative of all of America. Absolutely, Kamala. How, how, do you, how do you feel? How do we earn it? How do we earn it with our own two hands? Well, you know, to your point, DJ, so uh, it's about trust, right? And as we know, the nature of trust is that, like Joe was saying, and you said, it's a reciprocal relationship. You give and you receive trust. Yes. And one of the foundations of trust is truth. You must speak truth, but here's the reality. Truth can sometimes be really difficult to hear. And for that reason, sometimes people don't speak it. But you cannot have trust if you don't speak truth. You know that as a parent. We know that as parents. You have to speak truth. And as long as there is an understanding that it is being spoken not to confront, not to hurt, but to deal with things the way they must be handled, I think that has to be part of the core of, of of what we do as we go forward because, to your point, we're facing as a country so many challenges and people are grieving. I mean, people are grieving the loss of life, the loss of jobs, the loss of certainty, the loss of normalcy. And to heal and get through this, we're going to have to be honest about what healing will require. Yes. And that's one of the things that Joe and I really do have in common, which is we're motivated by healing, but we know to do that, we have to be honest about what it's going to take. Yes, absolutely. You know, and, and, and to that point, when you're honest with a scenario and people who you care about, and obviously we, you guys, all of us care deeply about our American people, um, that, that when you, you mentioned the word decency, you mentioned, mentioned the word respect and honesty, dealing with this, but it also it leads right into making progress, but through a humanity, and how important that progress is, but through humanity. And, and, um, and thank you for saying that. I think that conversation was tailor-made to piss me off. The Rock, listen, I, when I was younger, I loved WWF, as it was called at the time. Now it's WWE, just as much as anybody and uh, so he's kind of been, ever since my childhood, he's been, you know, a figure who's been known, famous, interesting guy. And then obviously he became the biggest movie star on the planet post the the wrestling era for him. And he's, he's a, a mega superstar. He's like an AA++ list celebrity. He's as famous as it gets. And... So this is, I mean, I, I honestly think it might help a little bit 
just because of the degree of fame that he has achieved is almost beyond anybody's comprehension. He'd get recognized anywhere in the world. Um, so it might help a little bit, but having said that, not a single policy was mentioned. Not a single one. And you get the sense that this is three people talking who are obviously clearly economically comfortable, and they really just don't get the moment. They can't relate to the fact that we have a pandemic that killed 200,000 Americans, and we have what is effectively an economic depression, a colossal downturn. And you get the sense they don't have the urgency. They don't sense the urgency that regular people are feeling. So really, it's almost like this conversation was created at a time where the country wasn't falling apart. You know what I mean? Like, this endorsement could have been done in, like, 1999. It just feels like there's not a weightiness to it, and they're going through the motions to act like it's a normal election year. So some of the things that got under my skin, first of all, they keep calling him DJ. You want to know why they keep calling him DJ? To leave the impression that they already know him, and they're close, and they're comfortable with him. And I have no doubt that staffers told them, like, this is what we're going to do. It's one of those, like, psychological tricks to make people think, oh, so I guess they're all, they already kind of know each other. They're calling him DJ. And they make a point of doing it a few times. Like, at the beginning, Biden just, hey, DJ, hey, my buddy, you know, like, we saw you last month at the barbecue or something. It's just little things like that. I don't know. They piss me off, man. It's just, it's disingenuous. Then, of course, we lead to... Just the airy-fairy, like, talking without saying anything stuff. Biden talks about, or excuse me, The Rock says that he's endorsing them because Biden leads with compassion, heart, drive, and soul. What does any of that mean? That doesn't mean anything. That's just flowery-sounding words that you're attributing to this guy. A guy, by the way... Who wrote the crime bill, which led to the mass incarceration crisis? Are we going to pretend like that's not the case? Are we going to pretend like he didn't support the Iraq war? Are we going to pretend like he didn't support NSA spying, which illegally and unconstitutionally collects all of our metadata? I mean, guys, I don't, like, I wish this wasn't the case, but it is the case. Are we going to pretend like he didn't repeatedly try to cut Social Security by working with Republicans? That's not compassionate. That's not leading with, like, heart and drive. But that doesn't even mean anything. It's like they know they can't lean on his record, so they default to, let's just say, happy-sounding words. Then he says to, about Kamala, oh, the reason he's endorsing her, she was a district attorney, a state attorney, a U.S. senator, and a certified badass. And it's like there are Republicans who have that same career arc. Would you endorse a Republican because they were a district attorney, a state attorney, a U.S. senator, and then a badass? No. See, it, it's – there's no substance there. There's no substance. Kamala Harris is a person who laughed at the idea of legal marijuana in 2014, as recent as 2014. She laughed at the idea, wanted to lock up parents of kids for truancy. Are we going to talk about the specifics? Are we going to talk about the details? No. She let Steve Mnuchin off the hook. Steve Mnuchin, the Goldman Sachs fraud, 
who now is the Treasury Secretary, by the way, because he didn't go to prison because Kamala Harris didn't prosecute her, and that was against the wishes of her own office. The Rock talks about respect. Kamala says this is about trust and truth, motivated by healing. And then, of course, they bring it home with, it's about honesty, decency, and progress through humanity. None of that means anything. None of it means anything. For the love of God, at least don't insult our intelligence. Like, at least give me something real. At least be like, hey, the reason I'm endorsing Joe Biden and Kamala Harris is because they say they're for a $15 minimum wage, so they're in favor of a living wage, and... Biden just talked about how he's going to sign a Buy America executive order, which would create a bunch of jobs here at home in the U.S., and we desperately need that. Give me something. Give me something tangible. Something. Something. Nothing at all. Nothing at all. It's like they are the parody of the vapid Hollywood types. It's just empty. Everything's empty. Not substantive, not serious. But there will be some small segment of the population who will hear this and will love it. It's like, okay, but just let's just acknowledge what it is. Let's just acknowledge what's going on. Let's be clear that this has nothing to do with actually fixing the country and addressing any of the zillion problems. This is people that have made it to the top of the hierarchy of the United States sitting around and telling each other how great they are and just using vague descriptors that really mean nothing. As I said, it, this was kind of tailor-made to, to get under my skin. I mean, I hate them all. I, I despise Trump with a burning passion. He's horrendous. But it just it kills me that like this is the opposition. It's just they, they don't seem to have learned much from the last election where Hillary had a laundry list of celebrities that she trotted out as having endorsed her. And it's like, what if the majority of Americans really are culturally detached from this kind of stuff, you know? Because Hollywood does sort of feel like a little insular clique and club and an elitist club that kind of looks down at regular people. So... Maybe it's just the wrong direction overall that people really do feel like Hollywood is as smug as it is. Again, I do think overall this will probably help because The Rock is almost like uniquely liked. Um, But I just hate that this is what politics has become. And here's some wild speculation for you to end this segment. I think he might have some political aspirations in the future. I get that vibe from him. I get that sense from him. He talks like somebody who wants to eventually become a politician. You know, following in the footsteps of, of Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's kind of, it would kind of be a similar career arc. So, who knows. But there you have it. Their biggest endorsement to date. And they said absolutely nothing of substance in the endorsement. All right, next. Amy Coney Barrett, or as I was jokingly calling her, Amy Coney Island, 
because I have the mind of a toddler, or Amy Waffleconey. I think I might like that one a little bit more. Well, she has officially been picked by Trump to fill Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat. And I would say the majority of the dialogue is discussing her conservative beliefs when it comes to social issues. So, you know, on issues like abortion, for example. Um, But there's also quite a bit to say on her economic record. In fact, you could argue she's worse on that front. So David Sirota says the following in his outlet, The Daily Poster. Just weeks before President Donald Trump reportedly selected her to fill the new Supreme Court vacancy, Judge Amy Coney Barrett delivered a ruling that could help corporations evade long-standing laws requiring them to provide overtime pay to their workers. That ruling was one of a number of cases in which Barrett helped corporate interests prevail over workers. Her highest-profile business-focused actions on the federal bench have limited the enforcement of age discrimination laws, restricted federal agencies' power to punish companies that misled consumers, and reduced consumer rights against predatory debt collectors. According to a recent report from the Alliance for Justice, Barrett's August ruling in the overtime case is particularly significant. It comes as technology companies have been trying to use mandatory arbitration clauses to avoid better remunerating remunerating? so-called gig workers. Those provisions often force worker disputes to be decided by private arbitrators handpicked by the companies rather than in an impartial court of law. Corporate lobbying groups in Washington focused on court nominees have long been promoting forced arbitration as a way to prevent workers from exercising their rights through class action lawsuits. So, in this case, um, I believe Grubhub was involved in the case, and they weren't paying their workers overtime. And a bunch of the Grubhub workers were like, okay, well, we need to fix this. How do we fix it? They went to Grubhub, and Grubhub said, yeah, we're not going to pay it. And then they were like, okay, well, then we're going to sue you. And then Grubhub went, um, actually, you can't, because when you started working for the company, you signed a contract, and the contract says if there's disputes, it goes into this thing called arbitration. So what's arbitration? Arbitration is basically like a private court. Now, here's the problem with arbitration. Usually the people who ultimately make the decisions at the end of the day are hired by management of the corporation, So, in other words, they are colossally biased in favor of management, and they're biased against the workers. So, really, it's a way to take away workers' rights to redress their grievances in a substantive way. So, Amy Coney Barrett's ruling effectively was, no, you have no standing, even if they have to pay you overtime, and they're not paying you overtime, nothing I could do about it because you have no standing to have this in front of the court. So it has to go through arbitration, and of course in arbitration, they side with management. You know, this is a problem with the, the, the new gig economy, as it's called, which is you have these people who are workers who are not legally classified as employees. They're classified as private contractors. And so there's a bunch of 
you know, protections that they would have if they were employees that they no longer have as independent contractors. And there's another great example of it right here where they basically have seemingly given up their ability to redress grievances so the company can treat them as terrible, however terrible as they want to, and there's really no way to get back at them and, and to get what they're owed, what they're deserved. And this is why, you know, um, stealing wages there's way more stealing of wages than there is just stealing in this country in any given year. So in other words, the management class, the owner class, they're stealing from their workers a hell of a lot more than any random, you know, robbery happening of a convenience store or whatever across the country. So it's almost like there's, there's crime baked into the system and the crime is waged from the 1% on the 99% and it's just accepted. And it's not viewed as what it is, which is white-collar crime and inexcusable and screwing workers. Wage theft, I believe, is the, the term that I was trying to come up with and I couldn't for whatever reason. It's wage theft. Wage theft it is bigger than theft theft. Isn't that crazy? Also, civil asset forfeiture. There's more civil asset forfeiture, which is just legalized robbery by cop, than there is robbery. Isn't that crazy? It kind of flips the whole dynamic of society in your mind, doesn't it? Like, who are the real criminals? Well, oftentimes it's the 1% who rigged the economy and are screwing workers. The ones, the, the rich people with the suits and ties who look all serious, they're the real criminals. The cops doing civil asset forfeiture to the tune of billions of dollars a year, just stealing legally, those are the real criminals in many instances. And like I said, it's more than actual just robbery. So, I mean, it says a lot, doesn't it? But this is, what the legacy of Amy Coney Barrett would be. And this is what's not discussed nearly enough. Yes, there is a divide when it comes to the conservative justices and the liberal justices on social issues. And the liberal justices are usually a hell of a lot better on social issues. But when it comes to economic issues, honestly, you know, the, the so-called liberal justices are rather centrist. They still have plenty of opinions that agree with corporate power, just so everybody understands. But the conservative justices are just unbelievable. And I've, de I've described on this show previously that the fear is if you get a 6-3 conservative court, we can effectively enter a new Lochner era of the Supreme Court. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with it, you know, you can either listen to some, some of the old comments on this show about the Lochner era or you could read about it. But basically the Lochner era was an era of the Supreme Court where they ruled that employers and employees have what's called a right to contract which means whatever the hell goes in that contract, the government is not allowed as an independent third party to regulate that contract. Now, the problem with that is the employer has all of the leverage in the negotiation with the employee. There's a, a giant power disparity. So the employer can put in the contract, I'm going to need you to work overtime and not get overtime pay. Uh, we're going to have no child labor laws, um, you know, whatever it might be. You, you don't have weekends off, like they could be incredibly abusive in how they craft the contract, and then they could effectively say, take it or leave it, because if you don't take this position, somebody else will take this position. And so even something like minimum wage laws, if the government says, hey, you need to pay this person at least this much, uh, during the Lochner era of the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court ruled, actually, no, they don't. The government is literally not allowed to get in between a contract. So however abusive the contract is, it is what it is, and the government has to piss off. And, of course, this led to, you know, a version of, 
of so-called free market fundamentalism, which really, really, really screwed workers. And um, there was just wanton abuse. And we were in the Lochner era for quite a while, and it had devastating consequences, including, you know, insane pollution. So worker abuse, insane pollution. And so it took a long time before we were able to go back on that and just constitutionally accept basic government regulations. So imagine we go back to a Lochner era type situation where workers have next to no rights at all then what? I mean, they could, through various cases, they could effectively crush unions even more than they've already been crushed. And we're at a a low right now in terms of private unions. So it's bad, man. It's really bad. And this is going to be the part that's not discussed nearly enough. You're going to have, you're going to have Democrats put up a weak fight. They won't do a good job fighting to to keep her off the bench. Um, But even the kinds of arguments they use, I suspect, will be weak. And it will not be focused around this, which I do think this kind of stuff motivates people more to say, hell no. But when you don't put the economic stuff front and center, we're left with just the social stuff, and that becomes the crux of the disagreement. And uh, then it's more in the culture war field than the class war and the economic war. And I think... You should talk about both of those things, but they won't, which is why you have to come here. And again, credit to David Sirota for telling us some of her record. She almost always sides with corporations, and that would be devastating for the American people. Okay, next. Okay, here we go. With the election coming up, the voter shamers are emerging from the shadows. Now, I mean, I I really do find this incredible because if you thought that left-wing third-party voters could sway this election, the last thing you should ever do is shit on them. You should be catering to them. You should be working overtime to cater to them to make sure that they'll vote for your candidate because that's the path to victory, according to what you're saying. So I don't understand. Like, it's like they don't think this through because these people are impulsive and really they're just democratic in-group virtue signaling. That's what this is. I'm I'm one of the good guys. I'm one of the good Democrats. Like, that's what this is. And it's the lack of strategic thought that I, frankly, I find stunning as to how unserious these people are. So I'm talking about Bill Maher here, but there was another example. There's Aaron Rupar tweet tweet that blew up, and there were others. Like, the voter shamers have really started leaning into it as we get closer to the election. Now, Bill Maher, I want to show you his comments. He went after these people. Uh, but unfortunately, HBO is being sort of like copyright trolls these days. And so I would be rolling the dice if I were to run the 
the video for you, so I'm not going to do that, but instead I'll show you some of what he said. Uh, Mediaite says, Mar goes off on 2016 Hillary equivocators who voted third party or stayed home because you know the lesser of two evils. Sorry, but you all have to eat it one more time because oh how I would love me some of that Hillary evil right now. He goes on. Bill Maher on leftists who don't vote for Hillary Clinton, quote, I hope you enjoy carrying your rape baby to term. You can name it Jill Stein. The first point here is notice how the anger is always saved for powerless voters. The anger is always directed at the voters. It's not directed at Hillary for not campaigning in many of these important swing states. It's not directed at her entire team for being strategic morons and losing the most winnable election of all time. It's for the voters who weren't sufficiently motivated. Again, if you are intelligent, you think, well, what do we have to do to get them out the next time? And so let's strategize and come up with a plan and do that. Instead of doing that, it's just anger and disrespect and shame directed at those same people who, according to you, are so almighty and powerful that they swung the 2016 election and can swing the 2020 election. So, I mean, that's the first point. To me, I think there are two just sort of like debate ending points that are just totally ignored in this conversation, which is what they're saying is not even true. So they did exit polls in 2016, and they asked the Green Party voters, if Jill Stein wasn't on the ballot, what would you do? And it was only 20% or 30% who said, yes, I would vote for Hillary if Jill wasn't on the ballot. And then you had, I think the biggest chunk was, I just wouldn't vote. And then you even had like 15% or something that said they vote for Trump. Now, in his lazy mind, and in the voter shamer's lazy mind, they just assume, oh, let's get rid of Jill Stein. And then the Democrat would get all of those Jill Stein voters. They're just giving the Democrat all of Jill Stein voters. But that's not how it works. And that's not true. And that's not accurate. You have to ask those people, what would you do? And like I said, only 20 or 30% of them would have voted for Hillary. And that wasn't enough to swing the election in Hillary's direction. That wasn't enough. Did you know 9% of Democrats voted for Trump? 9%. And they never talk about those people. They talk about they want to voter shame. They want to voter shame the third party people. So you're just wrong. But beyond that, let's grant them their point. Let's take a minute and grant Bill Maher his point, which is, oh, if Jill Stein was, you know, let's give all of Jill Stein's voters to Hillary, and then the election changes, and she's picking the Supreme Court justice. If you're going to give all of the Green Party votes to the Democratic candidate, you have to give all of the Libertarian votes to the Republican candidate. And there were three times more Libertarian votes than there were Green votes. So Hillary still loses. (laughs) Let's give all the green votes to the Democratic candidate, but not give the Libertarian votes to the Republican candidate. That makes no sense. Bill, that makes no sense. You're just making up this dream world to blame the people who you want to blame, who are the powerless third-party voters who are fed up and sick and done with the system. 
the way you win these people, it's not rocket science, man. The way you win these people is to appeal to their material interests. And the third-party voters are uniquely concerned about that. The green voters are uniquely concerned about that. If, I would guess, if Joe Biden, even if he just took, like, two issues that he's already nominally good on and he really drove it home and made people believe he's actually going to do it, I think he, he would win a lot of these people over. Like, for example, $15 minimum wage. He says he's for a $15 minimum wage now, but he never talks about it. I don't know why he never talks about it, because he's probably not actually for it. He just, you know, was sort of pushed there a little bit by Bernie, and so he's like, yeah, whatever, I'll play the game. $15 minimum wage. Okay, why don't you ever talk about it? That's an issue that would get you a lot of these voters, because they care about that issue deeply. So if Biden went out there and talked about that nonstop and really made people believe he was going to do something on the $15 minimum wage, a lot of these people vote for him. The Buy America thing is another one. He says he's for the Buy America thing now, but he doesn't really talk about it that much. That's another one where if you drive it home, that would happen. If Joe Biden actually came out in favor of Medicare for All and talked about it in every single speech and really made people believe he had a change of heart, in fact, he can give like a character arc story involving Medicare for All. And he could say, hey, listen, it was the pandemic that brought me to this place. I realized, you know, tens of millions of Americans are losing their health care and Obamacare is not sufficient. It's not enough. I think we did a great thing with Obamacare. I think it was the first step. But the next step is Medicare for All. I get it now. I've seen the light. I see what's going on. It, it would take somebody that has a cinder block where their head is supposed to be to not see the answer now. So if he were to do that, I, I think almost all of the third-party voters would get on board. But Biden's not going to do that because he's a neoliberal corporatist to his core. And we know how he's going to govern, and he's not, he's not evolving in any serious way. So, yes, some of these people are not going to end up voting for him. I do think that Howie Hawkins will ultimately get fewer votes than Jill Stein did by quite a bit. So I think Green Party will do a lot worse this year, and I think the Libertarian Party will do a lot worse this year. Um, but, yeah, if you really think these voters are responsible for swinging the election, then you should be catering to them over time. And that is not what Bill Maher is really advocating Biden to do, to really take a stand on policy and bring everybody together. Nope. He's not doing that. And so he's a hack. He's a democratic hack. I hate this stuff, man. It's so tough to watch. It's so tough to watch. The same people who have no money and no power and are left behind by the system and are really screwed, especially right now with the pandemic and the depression, these people are getting shamed and disrespected. And it's just amazing that they don't realize how counterproductive that is, you know? Listen, even take away my personal disagreement with these people or whatever, even just from a purely objective strategic perspective, for the love of God, you're gaining zero new Biden voters with this approach. So if that really is your goal, then you might want to listen to some of the advice that we're giving, because I mean it sincerely. If he focuses on things that will materially improve people's lives and makes them believe that he's actually for it, that's how you win them over. But here we are. It's like... They're never going to learn their lesson. It's like we're in the movie Groundhog Day. They're never going to learn their lesson. And let's say Biden loses hypothetically. You know what they'll do? They'll say he didn't run right wing enough. He needed to go further to the right. And then they'll also shame the left and say it's your fault again. So no matter what happens, if Biden wins, they will give zero credit to the left. If Biden loses, they will blame the left. So, you know, it's, 
everything just leads them to reassert, restate their premise. And we live in hell. And it's rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat a million times over. Okay. All right, I'm going to take a break. When we come back, we got a video of Joe Biden from a few years ago that resurfaced and went viral. I'll talk about that. And you'll get a a strange defense from me. Stay right there. We'll be right back, guys.
All right, bitch, I'm back, y'all. I am back, I am back, I am back. All right, so let's um let's keep it going. Hold on, wait a second. Spinning my microphone to get into a better position. There we go. Okay, that should be better. Okay, anyway. Um, where was I? Where was I with my scatterbrain self? Oh, the Joe Biden story. Okay, here we go. So, a video of Joe Biden from a few years ago resurfaced on Twitter and went viral. And some people on the right were using this as a got ya. I want to show you the video and then we'll talk about it. About me, I have incredibly good judgment. One, I married Jill. And two, I appointed Johnson to the Academy. I just want you to know that. Clap for that, you stupid bastard. So I saw a bunch of right-wingers using this against Biden. I even saw some people on the left face-palming over this, but I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I have a thick skin. Maybe I have a soft spot for uh, the the no-filter type stuff, but this doesn't bother me at all. And I think the point people are making is like, he's talking to the troops. Oh, Lord, the troops. The troops, good sir. So it's supposed to be like, you know, you got to kiss their ass (laughs) 24-7. And how dare you say something off the cuff that's like kind of funny. I mean, not for nothing, he sounds drunk as hell in this. But I also file that under the category of awesome. It's funny how you do have this contingent of people It exists on both the left and the right. Like, there are Democrats who will attack Trump on stuff that actually is really relatable. Like, I remember back in the election, back during the election before Trump was president, he was doing a town hall with Anderson Cooper. And he was talking about how he loves McDonald's and, like, telling Anderson Cooper his order or whatever. I think he mentioned, like, Big Mac and a bunch of things. And people were going after him for that. And it's like, what? Are we all pretending like you don't also enjoy McDonald's? Like, I do. <laughs> I think it's really tasty. So it's just funny that there's this thing that happens where when you hate somebody politically, you try to almost take anything they say and pick it apart. And it's like sometimes you look ridiculous because – Him casually calling the troops in a speech stupid bastards, I think, is the funniest thing. (laughs) He sounds like he's drunk. He definitely sounds like he's drunk. And he's like, I married Jill and pointed this person and clap for that, you stupid bastards. (laughs) If I if this Joe is the Joe that is is the one in the public from now until the election, he's gonna win. (laughs) He's gonna win because Trump is already mismanaging COVID beyond belief. 200,000 Americans are dead. He's doing a terrible job with the economy. 
The only thing he points to is like the stock market doing well, when that's not indicative of how your average American is doing by any stretch of the imagination. So between the economy and COVID, and if, if Biden can go out there and just give off the vibe of like old Uncle Joe with no filter, because that's, those, that's one of those things where, yes, polite society might be like, good sir, how dare you say such a naughty, naughty word. But there's the same shit that they try on Trump and it doesn't work when they're like, oh my God, you're so mean on Twitter. How could you? That doesn't work. Because I think a lot of people secretly kind of like that. Or at the very least, it doesn't bother them. So like the decorum humpers, see, I think we're, we're witnessing the final death blow to the decorum humpers. Because that has defined our politics for so long. The people who are obsessed with civility and politeness. And I think we're in a new era where people would rather have the no-filter honesty and, like, people saying whatever versus the overly buttoned-down, overly scripted, super-fake politician. In the same way that we witnessed the death of, like, the Martin O'Malley-style politician, remember him, where he's so on script and he talks with his finger like this. In the same way that that mold of politician has gone away, I think the fact that it's Trump versus Biden, that may signal like a new era in terms of how politicians present themselves. Don't get me wrong. I think both Trump and Biden are deeply pro-establishment politicians, but how they present is different. How they present is like the, the rugged ruffian who's just a normal dude. And this is very different from, you know, the Ronald Reagan era. And honestly, Barack Obama in terms of presentation, presented more like Reagan than like, like the no-filter kind of guy. So it was very structured and, and polite and acting, and there's a certain rhythm and cadence to how they talk, which is like overly professional. And I, I really do think that's gone. And that's, I think that's a good thing. That's my opinion. I think that's a good thing because at least it feels more real when it's just the regular talking. I want to see more of Joe Biden calling people stupid bastards. Don't fuck around and make me actually like them. <laughs> I don't. I don't. It's hard for me to like somebody who voted for the Iraq war. Um, but, yeah, this is the kind of stuff that they think it's a burn, but really it might help them. And the, I'm telling you, this is the Trump dynamic. The Trump dynamic was let's attack him on everything that's not a big deal, and that backfired, and that helped Trump. This is a little bit of what's happening with Biden now. Now, it's, it's different because it's not mainstream media as much going after Biden, but yeah, if the right leans into stuff like this, yummy in Biden's tummy, because that'll only help him. Okay. Ron Paul had a medical emergency while live streaming on YouTube. I want to show you this. Now, you know, I'm doing this honestly because it's educational. I did not know what a stroke looked like. And um, I think most people don't know what somebody having a stroke would look like. Now we know. So you're going to see this. I do have good news when we come back from the video. 
That was tough to watch. That was tough to watch. Um, he is okay. That's the update. So good news, he's okay. Somebody made the point that if you're ever going to have something like this happen, you want it to be when you're with people, when you're around people, when you're in front of people. Because, you know, if it's not, then you're much more likely to pass away. But happened in this situation, people were able to get him immediate medical attention, and so as of right now, he's doing fine. Um, But isn't that terrifying? Every now and then you get a reminder of just how fragile everything is. You know, Ron Paul, God bless him, he's made it to age 176, but when you look at everything that's happening with COVID, for example, 200,000 deaths, and it was just... It all happens so fast. And you see something like this. You see, you know, some prominent celebrity deaths happening recently. You just realize this is all, it's all so fragile, and we don't really take a, a moment to kind of soak in what's happening right now and, and soak in, just enjoy, almost enjoy your existence. I think people have a hard time just tapping into that mindset when they can be, where they can be appreciative and have gratitude. We're always thinking from like one problem to the next problem to the next problem. It's very rarely like, hold on now, let me, let me stop and smell the roses and really soak in some of the positive because yeah, you never know, man. You never know. To Ron, this was just another day. I'm going to go do my live stream. going to talk about, you know, libertarian stuff. And then this happens. It's like, whoa. So again, he's okay. Um, but that was very educational. Now you know if somebody acts like that around you at some point. They're having a stroke, and you need to get them immediate uh, medical attention for sure. You know, Ron Paul's an interesting character. I've talked about, I've talked about him and, and libertarians more broadly quite a bit on the show. There's a love-hate thing going on there. There's some very strong voices on some of the issues I care deeply about, like, for example ending the wars. They're some of the best. I think they're way better than many Democrats on the whole thing of ending the wars. So soft spot for libertarians in that regard, soft spot for libertarians when it comes to legalization of drugs. Um, There are quite a few issues, civil liberties. There's a bunch of issues where we overlap and where, you know, you're only going to get change working with libertarians. So there's quite, quite a few issues like that. But then, of course, you know, on virtually every economic issue, and that might not be an overstatement. There's only a handful of economic issues where we agree, like don't bail out Wall Street. Agreed completely. Um, but, you know, on basic marketplace regulation, on single-payer health care, like they totally are against us on that. And, you know, it is what it is. I mean, that's where you, that's where you duke it out. That's where you disagree. That's where you argue. But, yeah it's interesting. I agree with them a lot, disagree with them a lot, but anyway, it does matter. I would never in a million years wish something like this, even on my worst enemy. So, um, glad that Ron Paul is better. What a terrifying, terrifying situation. And now everybody knows what a stroke looks like. And I honestly do believe that that's very important information to have. Um, 
All right, now we're, I'm gonna I'm gonna show you guys. We're gonna go back in time a little bit here, and we're gonna look at Joe Biden debating. So we're gonna take a moment here to go back in time, and I'm gonna show you what Joe Biden does when he debates. This is what Joe Biden looks like when he debates. Now you saw him in the primary season, but honestly, in many ways, he's a shadow of his former self. Now, I would argue he did worse when there were more people on stage. He just didn't seem as with it, didn't get much in. He gave us some cringeworthy moments when he did talk. Um, what was the one that really blew up that we covered and everybody covered, basically? Uh, the kids hear words and <laughs> the record player. Turn the record player on at night. Make sure the kids hear words. The phone. <laughs> People were like, what are you saying? So that was bad. But you'll notice when he got one-on-one with Bernie, he actually came across as a pretty good debater. Now, why? Well, I would argue he was probably on something, which kept him there cognitively. Um, but also he lies like a rug. I mean, he's sort of like Trump in that he won't, he'll lie relentlessly. Like Bernie was pinning him on something in his record. And Biden just acted like, no, wrong. I didn't do that. And Bernie's like, yes, you did. We have the votes. And he's like, no, I didn't do that. I remember watching that going, this is insane. Like, you're at a permanent disadvantage in a debate if one of the people in the debate just disregards reality brazenly. (laughs) And that's what he did. So anyway, he's not bad one-on-one. But we're going back to when Joe was Joe, was Uncle Joe. And he actually, I think, was a phenomenal politician. And he buried Paul Ryan. So here, now this uh, released this the other day. I want to sh- I want to show you some of the more interesting parts. Take a look. You want to ask basically why I'm pro-life? It's not simply because of my Catholic faith. That's a factor, of course. But it's also because of reason and science for our seven-week ultrasound for our firstborn child. And we saw that heartbeat. With regard to abortion, I accept my church's position on abortion as a, what we call, de fide doctrine. Life begins at conception. That's the church's judgment. I accept it in my personal life. But I refuse to impose it on equally devout Christians and Muslims and Jews. And, uh, I just refuse to impose that on others, unlike my friend here, the congressman. Uh, I, uh, I do not believe that, um, uh, that we have a right to tell other people that women, they, they can't control their body. It's a decision between them and their doctor. In my view, in the Supreme Court, I'm not going to interfere with that. They passed the stimulus. The idea that we could borrow $831 billion, spend it on all these special interest groups, and that it would work out just fine. That unemployment would never get to 8%. It went up above 8% for 43 months. They said that right now, if we just pass this stimulus, the economy would grow at 4%. It's growing at 1.3. And I love my friend here. I ha- I'm not allowed to show letters, but go on our website. He sent me two letters saying, by the way, can you send me some stimulus money for companies here in the state of Wisconsin? We sent millions of dollars. You know why he said he did that? For stimulus. Sure, he read it. By the way, on two occasions, we, had, we, we advocated for constituents who were applying for grants. <laughs> That's what we do. 
We do that for all constituents. Oh, I love that. I love that. This is such a bad program. And he writes me a letter saying, writes the Department of a letter saying, the reason we need this stimulus, it will create growth and jobs. His words, Governor Romney, on 60 Minutes, I guess it was about 10 days ago, was asked, Governor, you pay 14% on $20 million. Someone making $50,000 pays more than that. Do you think that's fair? He said, oh, yes, that's fair. That's fair. This is, and they're going to talk about, you think these guys are going to go out there and cut those loopholes? The loophole, the biggest loophole they take advantage of is the carried interest loophole and, and capital gains loophole. They exempt that. Now, there's not enough. The reason why the AEI study, the American Enterprise Institute study, the Tax Policy Center study, the reason they all say it's going to taxes go up in the middle class, the only way you can find $5 trillion in loopholes is cut the mortgage deduction for middle class people, cut the health care deduction for middle class people, take away their ability to get a tax break to send their kids to college. That's why they is arrive. Is he wrong at about that? He is wrong about that. There, you, okay. can, you can cut tax rates by 20% and still preserve these important preferences for middle-class taxpayers. Not mathematically it, possible. It, it is mathematically possible. It's been done before. It's precisely <laughs> what we're proposing. It has never been done before. It's been done a couple of times. Actually. It has never been Jack done Kennedy lowered tax rates increased growth. Ronald oh, Reagan. now you're Jack Kennedy. Ronald Reagan. <laughs> Republicans and Democrats. Republicans and Democrats. Have worked together on this. You know, I understand right. you guys aren't used but to doing bipartisan deals. What we're going to do when we did it with Republicans Reagan, Democrats, said, here, here's the thing. We're going to cut. Framework, here's what he said. We're going to fill in the details. That's exactly. Fill in the details. That's how you get things done. You work with Congress. Look, let me say it this way. Mitt that's Romney was the Republican Congress working Mitt, bipartisanly. Mitt Romney. Seven percent rating. Mitt Romney. We immediately went out and rescued General Motors. We went ahead and made sure that we cut taxes for the middle class. And in addition to that, when that, ha when that occurred, what did Romney do? Romney said, no, let the Detroit go bankrupt. We moved in and helped people refinance their homes. Governor Romney said, no, let foreclosures hit the bottom. But it shouldn't be surprising for a guy who says 47% of the American people are unwilling to take responsibility for their own lives. My friend recently in a speech in Washington said 30% of the American people are takers. These people are my mom and dad, the people I grew up with, my neighbors. They pay more effective tax than Governor Romney pays in his federal income tax. They are elderly people who, in fact, are living off of Social Security. They are veterans and people fighting in Afghanistan right now who are, quote, not paying any taxes. I've had it up to here with this notion that 47%, it's about time they take some responsibility here. They should be signing a pledge saying to the middle class, we're going to level the playing field. We're going to give you a fair shot again. We are going to not repeat the mistakes we made in the past by having a different set of rules for Wall Street and Main Street. Not bad, huh? Not bad. I don't even know if they had the, uh, the part in there, the malarkey part. There's a famous moment where he says to Paul Ryan, like, that's a bunch of malarkey. And there's another part where he says, that's a bunch of stuff. Like, you could tell he wants to say shit, but he, like, reels it in at the last moment. Like, that's a bunch of stuff. Um, so, listen, he was a good debater. He was a good debater. I don't think there's any way around that. Uh, the thing that he does so effectively, and this, is, this makes him a good communicator. Yes, you could see a giant difference between 2012 and now. Like, you could tell cognitively he's on the decline for sure, and it's hard to watch. 
But what he does so well there is, so he's smiling a lot, which sends off like a good vibe, but he's, he's both incredibly dismissive of Paul Ryan and likable at the same time, which is just like a perfect mix for somebody like Paul Ryan, who really is smug and overrated and in over his head, and he's a child who read one too many Ayn Rand books, and it stuck with him. And yeah, he was, he was trounced by Biden. Biden absolutely trounced him. So he started, you heard the nuanced abortion comments there. Um, I, I thought that, you know, I thought those were good. I thought those were pretty solid. Now, some people would argue, hey, drop the whole, like, oh, I accept it in my personal life thing. But I don't know. I think that I, think that, that line on abortion actually lands well. Um, then he talked about how Paul Ryan, as he publicly bashes the stimulus program that they did, and this is in response to the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession, he publicly bashes the stimulus while begging for stimulus money. So publicly, he says, this thing is a disaster, this thing is terrible, it's adding so much money to the debt and the deficit, it's unacceptable, we can't do it, it doesn't even work. And then privately, he's writing letters to Joe Biden asking for stimulus money and saying, like, this will create jobs and growth. What happened? I thought you said if it's government money, it by definition does not create jobs and growth, that that's illegitimate. But that's a drain on the economy. What happened? He's full of it. He's full of it. This is just like with Mitch McConnell pretending like, you know, he's got these right-wing economic beliefs. Any pork project he can get for his home state, he loves it. Like, this is what all these guys do. They're frauds. They're frauds. Um, then he argues against trickle-down economics. I'm reminded of one of his best lines that he delivered in his DNC speech in 2012 where he said, Bin Laden is dead and GM is alive. That got like the biggest roar. There were headlines everywhere about that. That, that is a good line. That absolutely is a good line. And he has something that Hillary didn't have, which is when Trump attacks him on NAFTA, when Trump attacks him on outsourcing, um, he can immediately say, like, I'm the guy who saved GM. You're telling me I don't care about these workers? I saved GM. It was our administration that bailed out General Motors, and we're proud of that. So he's got that rebuttal, which, again, is not something Hillary just didn't know how to respond and look economically populist like Trump did. Biden has the ability, even though it's half BS, half true, he's got the ability to come across as economically populist. Um, And then the 47% comment, that really, people forget how big of an impact that had on the 2012 race. It was very close to the election, if I remember correctly. And there were these secret, there's like this high dollar fundraiser that Mitt Romney was at. And he had this line about how 47% of the American people don't want to take responsibility. They're effectively takers. They're parasites. And then, you know, it's the rest of us are makers. And the real argument was like, Republicans are incredibly productive members of society. And the Democrats are the takers. They just want free stuff. That was the argument. And, you know, basically the way that was perceived by the public is, oh, you don't want to be president of the United States of America. You don't want to be president of all people. You want to be president for Republicans. And, you know, it's just it's just a disrespectful thing to say, as if like what? 47% of the country, so all these Democrats are just like not working and they have the ability to work, but they choose not to work? Of course not. It's, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Um, but it was a huge moment. 
The other thing that was big was Obama really hit Romney on, like, he had, he was investing in companies that were outsourcing during the election. Like, he was in management for these companies, and these companies were outsourcing jobs during the election. So Obama and and Biden and their team sent people to, like, interview all these people who are having their jobs outsourced during the campaign, and that was a devastating ad that destroyed Mitt Romney. It showed him as Thurston Howell III, the out-of-touch elitist that he is, and um, it's one of the reasons he lost. People forgot that in 2012, Obama ran a very populist campaign, and Biden also leaned into this stuff as well. Um, So he was a good debater. Now, he has cognitively declined since then, but just like in the debate against Bernie recently that Biden did, he was on something, and he was pretty good. And I, I honestly, I think most people expect Trump to, to win the debates by a lot. And so Biden has a lower bar to clear now. And as long as he's on something and he has a performance even half as good as the one against Paul Ryan, he could do well. He could do well. So, you know, don't underestimate old Uncle Joe with how he has the ability to come across as like a straight-shooting, likable guy even though his record has many, many issues, for sure, that we talk about all the time on this show, don't underestimate him as a politician. He's actually a pretty damn skilled politician, and I think you could see a lot of that shine through in the debate with Paul Ryan. Okay, next. Hold on. Hold on one second. All right, next. My bad. This one is out of date, but I had to talk about it. I had to talk about it. So last week, there was a moment, I think this was on Wednesday evening, there's a moment that really blew up and got everybody in the political world talking because the implications of this are pretty scary. Trump was doing a press conference and he was asked if he will abide by a peaceful transition of power. Here's his response. Why 
So um, surprisingly, I've seen all sorts of reaction to this. I would say most of the reaction has been like, holy crap, this is a big deal. The president is not saying, yeah, of course, I'm for a peaceful transition to power. But I have seen some people argue the opposite, argue like, oh, this is another one of those moments where the media is always stuck in hair on fire mode when it comes to Trump. And this is yet another thing that they're losing their minds over. But in reality, nothing different is going to happen. You know, if he loses, he's going to get out of there. This is another argument that I've seen people make. So what's my take on it? Honestly, I agree much more with the people who are like, this is a bad sign. This is not good. It's not. So the way you're supposed to answer, the way any president would answer when asked about a peaceful transition of power, they would say, of course, that's a hallmark of American democracy. If I win, I'm staying. If I lose, I'm going. Of course. This is the way it works. That's how any president would answer prior to Trump, Democrat or Republican. Even Republicans I hate. Even the Republicans I hate, they'd be like, of course. It's not a question. It's obvious. But he doesn't answer like that. He says, we're going to see what happens. You know, the ballots, the ballots, there's problems with the ballots. And let me just tell you, get rid of the ballots, and there won't be a transition. There will be a continuation of power. So, guys, every day he reminds us and he tells us and he puts it front and center that mail-in ballots are fraudulent, mail-in ballots are fraudulent, mail-in ballots are fraudulent, all, all these sketchy, questionable things happening. I, basically, he's trying to say, I think Sleepy Joe is already stealing it. I think he's stealing it. So... He's almost letting you know he will contest it if he loses. He's letting you know that. We're just used to him blabbering about this daily, so I guess people have gotten a thick skin to it and they're a little bit numb to it. But, yeah, he's letting you know, like, no, I'm not going to – he's going to casually and peacefully concede on election night if he loses or when we finally get the results, he's going to be like, you know what, fair is fair. No, he's already been setting it up every day. Every day he's been setting it up. Oh, mail-in ballots are fraudulent. Mail-in ballots are fraudulent. Get rid of the mail-in ballots, and then there won't be a transition. There'll be a continuation. And he always does the thing where he argues, like, I'm up. I've seen polls where I'm up. Nonsense. I mean, it's not true. All the polls have Biden up, some of them more or less. But it's not true that Trump is up, but he's been setting the table, like, of course I'd win if it wasn't for this fraudulent stuff going on. So do I think this is a big deal? I do. Now, the details are where nobody knows what's going to happen, and people are lying to you if they tell you they know what's going to happen. Um, One scenario is that, yeah, he put aside the scenarios where he potentially wins for a second, because obviously he'll be happy with that, and, you know. But let's say he loses... And he, like, kind of raises a big stink about it, which is expected. But it's possible he's all bark and no bite in that he oftentimes says stuff and doesn't follow through with it. Just like he did with Afghanistan. Like, two years ago now, he tweeted, like, we're getting out of Afghanistan. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be great. And he just didn't get out of Afghanistan. So this is a common thing with Trump where, like, he'll say things and then there's just no follow through at all. So it's possible he, like, raises a big stink about it, but as he's raising a big stink, he's being, like, you know, pushed out of the Oval Office by 
people at the White House or the generals or whatever, like, okay, you can say whatever you want to say, but you're done here, son. That's possible. Um, but a real fear is his, his people. Like, if Trump sends the signal, and he very likely will if he loses, how many Kyle Rittenhouses are there out there? I think there's a lot. I think there's a lot of people who, on the right, who just total, who would argue that the election is completely illegitimate. And then you have 30% or 40% of the country that's like, yeah, I'm, I don't buy it, and I think Biden is doing a coup. And then what happens? Then what happens? Do you get like this massive spike in domestic terrorism where you got these right-wing people attacking, you know, whatever it might be? left-wingers or or government buildings or, like, the consequences of his actions, like, they're going to be consequences. And he either doesn't know or doesn't care, or he's okay with that. And it's like, I could see that happening. Like, I could see him being all bark and no bite. So, like, if he loses, he will be, like, forced out. But the fact that he's raising a stink about it means his people are just not going to accept the legitimacy of the election. And then we're in hell, because who knows... What else happens? I think, honestly, I think the least likely scenario is that he, like, casually accepts the results and he steps down. I think it is a, probably a likely scenario that he raises a stink about it, but he still is out of there. And, you know, I think the scenario that most pe- people, like the Democratic partisans, they most fear he raises a stink about losing and he literally just doesn't leave and you have what is effectively a coup. I think that's the thing people are very, very fearful of. Um, listen, I don't have all the answers. I don't know. All I know is what he said to this point and what his intention is. His intention, for sure, is going to be, I'm going to deny the legitimacy of the election, guaranteed, if I lose. Like, he's made that crystal clear. Um, the question is, how does it unfold from there? And I don't have answers. All I have is the same kind of sentiment and emotion that everybody else has, which is just, like, we're on shaky ground, man. Things are not, things are really out of the ordinary. All of 2020 has been a colossal mess and one crisis after another. But yeah, this is definitely another crisis. And the people who I vehemently disagree with the most are the people who are acting like all this concern is just another nonsense boy who cried wolf type scandal regarding Trump. Like there are people who think this is just like all the other things you scream that the media screamed about and nothing came to pass. I don't know, man, when you have a president signaling very clearly, he simply like will not accept the results if he loses. I do think that's a big deal. I do think that's a big deal because here's what I can guarantee you. No matter what happens, it's going to be messy. Even in a scenario where Trump is up on election night and Trump wins when all the votes are counted, even in that scenario, it's going to be messy. It's going to be messy if Biden is up big on election night and if Biden wins when all the votes are counted. That's going to be messy too. Those will be the least messy ones, but they'll still be messy. What's crazy is that a possible scenario, a likely scenario, is it looks like Trump is up on election night, but since more Democrats do mail-in voting when all the mail-in votes are counted, Biden can win comfortably. So it could look like Trump is winning on election night, but Biden can win comfortably when all the votes are counted. Experts call this the red mirage. And if that happens, and again, it's a likely scenario, oh my God, guys. I just really do feel like we're, you know, we're in a uniquely terrible situation. Nothing is normal. Nothing is stable. 
it's tough. It's really tough. All we can do is hope that everything goes smoothly, even though that's very naive at this point. Okay, next. So Dr. Fauci and Rand Paul sparred last week, and it got pretty testy. Dr. Fauci, today you said you are not for economic lockdown, yet your mitigation recommendations from dating to baseball to restaurants to movie theaters have led to this economic lockdown. Do you have any second thoughts about your mitigation recommendations, considering the evidence that despite all of the things we've done in the U.S., our death rate is essentially worse than Sweden, equivalent to the less developed world that is unable to do any of the things that you've been promoting? Do you have any second thoughts? Are you willing to look at the data that countries that did very little actually have a lower death rate than the United States? You know, Senator, I'd be happy at a different time to sit down and go over detail. You've said a lot of different things. You've compared us to Sweden, and there are a lot of differences. And you said, well, you know, there are a lot of differences between Sweden, but compare Sweden's death rate to other comparable uh, uh, Scandinavian countries. It's worse. So I don't think it's appropriate to compare Sweden with us. Yes, we have I, I think in the, in, in the beginning we've done things based on the knowledge we had at the time, and hopefully, and I am, and my colleagues are humble enough and modest enough to realize that as new data comes, you make different recommendations. But I don't regret saying that the only way we could have really stopped the explosion of infection was by essentially, um, I want to say shutting down. I mean essentially having the physical separation and the kinds of recommendations that we've made. You've been a big fan of Cuomo and the shutdown in New York. You've lauded New York for their policy. New York had the highest death rate in the world. How could we possibly be jumping up and down and saying, oh, Governor Cuomo did a great job. He had the worst death rate in the world. No, you misconstrued that, Senator, and you've done that repetitively in the past. They got hit very badly. They've made some mistakes. Right now, if you look at what's going on right now, the things that are going on in New York to get their test positivity 1% or less is because they are looking at the guidelines that we have put together from the task force of the four or five things of masks, social distancing, outdoors more than indoors, avoiding crowds, and washing hands. Or they've developed enough community immunity that they're no longer having the pandemic because they have enough immunity in New York City to actually stop. I challenge that, uh, Senator. Please, sir, I would like to be able to do this because this happens with Senator Rand all the time. You are not listening to what the director of the CDC said, that in New York it's about 22%. If you believe 22% is herd immunity, I believe you're alone in that. So as I was watching the back and forth, I got the sense, oops, sorry, this loud CNBC clip. So as I was watching that back and forth, I got the sense that this is almost every single debate happening in the country between liberals and conservatives, Democrats and Republicans. Um, I'm sure you see, you could see Facebook 
fights like that happening all over the place. You have the right-wing view, which Rand Paul is espousing there, which is the idea that, you know, economic shutdowns are bad. And as Trump had said previously, like, yeah, it, it can be worse than the virus itself. So really, first and foremost, as a libertarian, he prioritizes the economy over any sort of public safety thing and even goes as far as to maybe undermine um, things that were done in the name of public safety, which he views as like more of tyrannical restrictions on freedom that didn't necessarily help that much. This is the argument Rand Paul is making. And the argument that uh, Dr. Fauci is making is, listen, that's empirically not true because the right wing example, they love to bring up Sweden because Sweden didn't do any sort of shutdown and just said, we're just going to plow forward and do herd immunity. And they bring it up as like some sort of success story. But as Fauci accurately points out, the other Scandinavian countries locked down and they have a lower death rate than Sweden does. And on almost every objective measure, the other Scandinavian countries fared better and they shut down. So it's just not like he thinks he's making a point by comparing Sweden to the U.S., it's a more apt comparison to compare them to the rest of the Scandinavian countries. And yes, the other countries took the virus more seriously and had better outcomes. So I, I think Fauci's totally correct on that point. Now, Rand Paul brings up Cuomo and how, like, how could you praise him? He did, New York had like the highest death rate. They got hit so hard. So how could you praise him? And what Fauci says is, I'm, I'm not praising what they did early on. I'm praising how they got the virus under control once they started doing the right things. And I think that's a fair point. Yes, Cuomo deserves all the, all the criticism in the world for what he did with the nursing homes and for how mismanaged everything was from the beginning. So I heap scorn on him, not praise, for the decisions that exacerbated this crisis. I actually think Rand Paul is correct on that. But Fauci is also definitely correct that at they started doing the right thing, and since they started doing the right thing, um, New York has been in great shape. So, like, for me, the big thing I noticed, you know, being in, in, in the belly of the beast as all this was happening, as soon as we had a policy of universal masks, now you could argue it came way too late. It did. But as soon as we had that policy, the cases just absolutely plummeted. They plummeted. Because you can't go anywhere in, in New York, or at least in the, the tri-state area in New York, like New York City and a county or two north of New York City. You can't go anywhere, like if you go shopping, 100% of people are wearing masks. So there's this thing where they're just universal whenever you're, you're going to be anywhere around other people. And I really do credit that for really putting New York on the right path. And you guys know I always bring up the example of Japan. Japan had some limited economic shutdowns, like certain things they shut down, but a lot of stuff they kept open. And they really had universal masks was like the centerpiece of what they did. And they fared very well. Early on, it was only 1,000 deaths, as we had, you know, however, 50,000, 60,000, 70,000. They had 1,000 deaths. Um, so... Listen, really, I think Rand Paul is kind of an ideologue, and he's working backwards from his conclusion, and his conclusion is keep economy open, economy good, <laughs> like virus 
bad, but don't, you can't like restrict freedom, you know, in order to defeat the virus. So I think he, he has like this very doctrinaire down the line demagogue ideologue viewpoint on this, which you could see from any conservative, like there's a lot of mass denial that goes on on Facebook in conservative groups. Um, so I think that's, that's where his point of view is coming from. And I just, I don't agree with Rand on that. My minor area of disagreement with Fauci is just, um, there's no reason I don't think to oversell the shutdowns because yes, we did the shutdown. You could argue they were necessary or at least in part were necessary, but um, we are sort of not doing nearly enough to keep people afloat financially during this shutdown. And you can't, you can't not factor that in or not discuss it because it is true that that's, that has devastating consequences across the board. And so if you're going to shut down, you needed to do universal basic income. You needed to do it. You had to do it. If you're going to shut down, you have to give people a recurring stimulus payment. There's no choice. You have to do it. France shut down. They're paying people 84% of their wages, and they're going to do it through next summer. This is what you have to do if you're going to shut down. There's no way around it. So if that's not the direction that we're going to go in, shut down with stimulus, then, yeah, you've got to do the Japan model which is limited shutdowns, but everybody wears a mask for sure, universally. So I don't know. I do think you get a little bit of the uh, caricatured view here where Rand Paul, Rand Paul is always going to criticize as long as there's any economic shutdowns because he's a libertarian. Um, and they're always going to prioritize the economy almost above and beyond public safety. They view the shutdowns as inherently tyrannical. So that's like a, like a caricatured view of that. But on the Fauci side, yeah, I do think he might go too far in over defending everything the government did. And I don't think, like, I think we should look at what happened, look at the mistakes, um, and then learn from it. And like I said, my conclusion is you either needed to do, do the economic shutdowns across the board, but you have to do a recurring stimulus payment. You have to do that. Or copy the Japan model. That, that's what I think should have been done. Um, but you're going to see, like, this will be argued for decades. Like, this exact argument you just saw of Fauci and, and Rand Paul, like, this exact argument will be happening with a bunch of people for decades. And it's going to be really annoying. It's going to be really obnoxious. And um, I'd like to not see any more of it because I get it. I already know what both sides are going to say before they say it. All right, I'm going to take just a, a real quick break, but then when I come back, we're going to talk about Amy Coney Barrett's seat, and we're going to talk about Michelle Bachman weighing in on this election. So stay right there. Quick break. We'll be right back.
right, baby. I'm back. I just ate some peanut butter crackers. Man, that was good. Okay. So, moving right along. In case you thought that the Democrats might grow a pair to defend Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat until after the election, think again. Axios says the following, Democrats privately fear that going too hard on Judge Amy Coney Barrett in her confirmation hearings could wind up backfiring if senators are perceived as being nasty to an accomplished woman. These people are beyond parody. They're beyond parody. So they've internalized the vapid neoliberal identitarianism. Like, they're drunk on identity politics. What do I tell you all the time about corporate Democrats? They know that they can't go left on economics because they're corrupt and they have corporate donors, so they have to do their bidding. They know they can't go left on economics. So what do they do? They think, well, we have to come up with a way to appease the base And how can we appease the base? I know. We'll go full woke. So you'll see them wear the kente cloth and take a knee and say Black Lives Matter and do all this symbolism stuff, all this vapid virtue signaling. That's how they think, like, oh, that's how we keep the base. We keep the base by going full woke as we continue to serve corporations and the wealthy. And now poisoned their own minds so much that they sincerely believe, hey, if we fight Amy Coney Barrett, aren't we hypocrites? Because she's a strong woman, and we're supposed to be pro-strong women. She's an accomplished woman, and we don't want to be perceived as nasty if we fight her too hard. As if, like, the Democratic base really believes, hey, if it's a woman... Don't criticize too hard. Really? So should we not criticize Sarah Palin or Michelle Bachman, for example? They're, they're accomplished women. You can't go too hard in the paint against them. Look how ridiculous this is. Look at how ridiculous this is. They've internalized their own garbage. So ideology is not factoring in at all. I'm sure they'll say things about some social issue stuff and abortion Previously, David Sirota wrote a great piece looking at her decisions on the economy, and she always sides with management and the owners over the workers. She basically screwed Grubhub employees out of overtime pay. They, they weren't getting paid overtime even though they were working overtime, and Amy Coney Barrett said, no, we can't do anything to fix that. You've got to go into private arbitration. And, of course, in arbitration, they're going to rule against the workers because the arbitrators are picked by management. So she always sides with corporations. Are they going to bring that up and attack her on that? Of course not. Of course not. They might even agree with her on that. She's a strong woman, guys. We can't go after strong women because that might mean we're sexist. Just like if you attack, if you go after somebody who's black, you might be racist. So let's apply that logic. Are you not allowed to disagree with Ben Carson? See, 
it's so easy to, to show how preposterous this mindset is. But I promise you, they really believe this. She's an accomplished woman. And by the way, what will the right do? They will cynically play into this as well. They already did it. Did you see the RNC where like every other speaker was like, women for Trump, blacks for Trump. They, they kept, they're playing the identity game too. So now they pick an accomplished woman to fill Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat. And if the Democrats try to block her, they'll be like, ah, oh, how could you all be so sexist? This is an accomplished woman. And the Democrats are too dumb to be like, that's bullshit. We disagree with their own ideology. They'll be like, oh, they're right. Maybe we shouldn't attack so hard because we don't want to look like hypocrites and we don't want to fight an accomplished woman too much. It's almost like the Democrats are paid to lose. They're the Washington generals. That's what it looks like. Unfortunately, this next story is becoming, it's a whole new genre recently. This is the second time we're covering a story that's exactly like this. Substitute teacher charged with a felony for receiving six months of health insurance through Medicaid. A felony to receive six months of health insurance through Medicaid. Her name is Janine Monta, and she lives in Wyoming. She's accused of collecting $5,526 in benefits from Medicaid. Now, here's the story. She was a substitute teacher, and at the time, she wasn't making that much money. She was on Medicaid. I believe it was a year later, she got a job teaching at a charter school. I think it was full-time, although not 100% sure. So her income level went up because she was a substitute, and then she's teaching like a normal schedule at a charter school. Um, And... She didn't update her income showing that she was making more. And I don't somebody tipped off the authorities or whatever. They looked into it and now she's facing uh, felony charges for getting health care through Medicaid. Because she started making too much to receive the Medicaid, but she still received Medicaid and got five thousand five hundred and twenty dollars worth of benefits. So the previous story was a woman who was getting Medicaid through Tennessee. She lived just over the border. She lied about like where she lived or her income level or something. And the reason she did it is because she couldn't afford health care for her three kids. So she got health care in Tennessee for her three kids, and that's a felony, and she faced up to 27 years in jail. Now, will she get that much? No. But the fact that we're even discussing any time in jail for getting health care, I really, I mean, this is one of those things where I don't have the words to sufficiently describe how barbaric this is, how evil this is, how savage this is, how ridiculous this is. I don't have the words for it. But I, I keep thinking of somebody in the UK or Canada or Australia or Japan Like, looking at these stories, what are they thinking? 
we've made it a felony to get health care in this country. You got it through Medicaid, but you made a little bit too much. Or you got it through Medicaid, but you technically lived over the border and you can't get it in this state. Felonies. Time in prison. Why are these people doing this? It's not rocket science. They're doing it because they can't afford health care. Our system is a mess. Yes, if you're an old person, you get Medicare. If you're very poor, you get Medicaid. But there's plenty of people who make a little bit more than that Medicaid line, and they really can't afford health care, and they don't get it through their employers. They're just screwed. Which is why, in this country, medical bills is one of the top causes of bankruptcy. It's also why anywhere from 45,000 to 60,000 Americans die every year because they don't have basic health care. It's a felony to get health care. A felony. You might go to jail because you don't have health care and, and you wanted health care, and so you found a way to get health care, which somewhat eased the burden on you. This is our system. Now, I really want you to think about priorities in this conversation because that just gives away the whole game. So we have just endless amounts of money to fight wars and for the Pentagon budget. Every year, we increase it billions and billions of dollars. Every year. Just read a story the other day. The Navy wants to increase the number of ships we have. They want a 500-fleet Navy. Nobody blinked. Nobody was like, uh, yeah, how are we going to pay for that? Nobody said that. Nobody said that in regards to the bailout of corporations in the CARES Act the multi-trillion dollar giveaway to these companies. So we have endless amounts of money for bailing out giant corporations and for war. But God forbid you get health care through Medicaid and you make just a little bit too much. You'll go to prison. You know who should go to prison? The Wall Street criminals. You know who should go to prison? The heads of the military industrial complex, the so-called defense contractors the politicians who are corrupt and doing their bidding and screwing regular Americans. These are the people who should be in prison. You're going to send somebody to prison for getting health care because they can't afford it until they found a way. Prison. Just the increase in the military budget in one year, 2018, one year, was $80 billion. Free college for everybody cost $60 billion. Not a single person said, how are we going to afford the $80 billion increase in the military budget. Nobody said that. So it's all about priorities. We don't prioritize what other developed countries prioritize. And actually, that's not fair. The people do prioritize it. Americans do prioritize it. But our government doesn't. Because our government doesn't represent us. Totally bought and owned by corporate American billionaires. And that's how we've gotten to this place. Every single poll I see verifies that the common sense agenda is what people want. They want Medicare for all. They want free college. They want a living wage. They want to end the wars. They want to rebuild this country. All the polls show it, all of them. They want universal basic income. That's a new one with the onset of the pandemic and the depression we're in. People want universal basic income. You name the issue, the so-called left position is the common sense position that everybody wants. 
not only are we not getting it, we're also locking people up for doing something like finding a way to get health care in a broken economy and in a broken system. I don't have, there's no way to express the sufficient amount of outrage you should have for this story. It's just, it's not possible. I don't know how to portray it. I don't know how to get across the seething rage I feel at reading a story like this. And we're going to see more of this. There's going to be more of this. There's going to be more. I found these two stories in the past week or two. People going to prison for, or going to be charged with felony getting health care. Throw them all out, man. I think it's time for a general strike, and we know what should be on the list of the demands. But this is beyond unacceptable. And I think everybody agrees to it, no matter where they fall on the political spectrum. The only people who don't agree to this are corrupt tools of the system. All right, next. So Michelle Bachman weighed in on this election. She's, of course, a, you know, a well-known former politician who ran for president, and uh, she regularly made headlines for some of the things she would say. But uh, here she is talking about Biden. need to understand this this is a revolution in the street it it compares completely it parallels communist takeovers in nation after nation for the last 103 years this is a communist revolution and takeover in our streets and really joe uh, biden is the non-essential candidate Um, from his party's perspective they don't care who's at the top of the ticket because what they know is that 100 days after the election should joe biden prevail they intend to put in, I believe, a Marxist form of government. They'll have it done in about 100 days. We'll never go back to who we were before. So this is not a, a normal election. This is the existential election of our lifetime. That's what we need to understand. Under Joe Biden, we'll have a Marxist government in 100 days. I know there are some people watching this uh, this video who are like, that's what's up. <laughs> we all know that's not true. Under Joe Biden, a Marxist government in 100 days. Why do people act like, like he was just vice president from 2008 to 2016? He was just vice president. Do you not remember anything about what happened? Do you not remember that under the Obama administration, there was a lot of growth in the private sector and the public sector, also known as the government, shrank. So they cut government and and there was private sector job growth and somehow he's a Marxist? Somehow he's a Marxist. He ain't a Marxist. He ain't a socialist. He ain't a social democrat. He's a corporatist. I mean, they don't make distinctions Guys, see, this is what I'm telling you. They got the same playbook. They break it out no matter who they're running against. It's all the same. 
oh my God, communism, oh my God, Marxism, oh my God, they love Antifa, oh my God, they're against law and order. It's so thoughtless. It insults our intelligence. I mean, give me something reasonable. They can't do it. Somehow Biden is a tool for the same people who he, behind the scenes, has been screwing this entire time. Yeah, Biden, uh, they, they coalesced to destroy Bernie at the last minute in this corrupt deal behind the scenes, but somehow Bernie is controlling Biden and the rest of the squad is controlling Biden. He's not for Medicare for all. He's not for legalizing marijuana. There's not a single, like all these ideas, which are great, by the way, he's not in favor of them. He's a moderate Republican and the Republicans are like, no, he's a commie. They just, they disregard his record. Again, they don't care. They don't care. This goes to show you the animating feature of Michelle Bachman's ideology is tribalism. I would argue also religious fundamentalism, of course. That's almost like a given for her. But tribalism as well. And in her tribal mind, Republican good, Democrat bad. I mean, this so-called godly woman, how many times, she's probably had to rationalize her support of Trump in a thousand ways, whether it's from the Grem by the pussy tape uh, or, you know, expanding the wars. Like, this, is this, are these the so-called Christian things to do, the Jesus-like things to do? Rationalize, rationalize, rationalize. Republican good, Democrat bad. Biden is uh, Antifa Marxist. It's just, it's amazing how out of touch they are. It's, um, it's beyond comprehension how out of touch they are. I just, like, I'd like to live a day in that mind. Just to know what it's like. What, it's like. what are you thinking? What are you feeling? How do you assert something? So, like, the nerve it takes to assert something so untrue, but do it so confidently. I'm just, I'm genuinely in awe, and that's why I'm sharing it with you. All right, final story of the day, guys. So I have some new numbers here on just how broken the economy is. Jeff Stein says the following. People in Wisconsin called the state unemployment office 41 million times between March and June. An audit has now found that just 0.5% of those calls were answered. We knew people were struggling to get through, but this is the first time I've seen it quantified. Only 0.5% of 41 million calls were answered. This is Wisconsin State Unemployment Office. And listen, Wisconsin's not special. You got all these, you know, state unemployment offices around the country. They were woefully underprepared for such a situation, like a pandemic and a depression. They just weren't prepared for it. I have more for you. Nearly a quarter of those who sought unemployment insurance didn't receive it. Almost 12 million people who applied for unemployment benefits did not receive it. That's 24% of the over 50 million who applied. The numbers are even worse for certain demographics. 24% of seniors who applied for unemployment insurance did not receive it. 30% of black people, 30% of multiracial people. 12 million people applied and didn't get it. The takeaway from this, in my mind, universal basic income. I mean, that's what I can't get out of my head. 
the, the best way, the most direct way to help people in a situation like this is cash relief. Why shouldn't we have recurring monthly payments? Why shouldn't we have that? Social security for all, effectively. People would be able to weather the storm much better if that was guaranteed, if we knew that a check was coming every month. And if you make it universal, then you make it much less likely it would ever be cut. As soon as you means test it, you turn it into not a universal program, but a welfare program, and we all know how easy it is for them to demonize welfare programs and for that to be on the chopping block. It always happens. Universal basic income is the answer, for sure. Now, we have a pandemic, we have a depression, we have a one-time $1,600 payment, and people, I mean, the numbers that I keep seeing on the economy are, are mind-boggling. The fact that 30-some-odd percent of the country couldn't make rent or pay their mortgage, and that was as of a few months ago. Who knows what it's like now? It's probably way worse now. Up almost, I think it's 28 million people on the brink of homelessness? Again, this is out of this world. And so the most direct way to address all this stuff, joblessness, wages being cut, whatever it may be, universal basic income is the answer. But all we see, there's not even a real push for that at the moment. All we see is, I mean, Washington, they left D.C., Congress left without even getting a new one-time stimulus check never mind a recurring one, again, it can't be overstated how much they don't care about you. But at a time like this, it, we, people need the relief. It's, I don't know how they get by without it. So this should, this is, these, this is stunning. These numbers are stunning. And people are hurting like they haven't hurt since the Great Depression. And they're not responsive. Again, I know I'm a broken record, but they're not going to do anything unless we make them do it. So really the answer is a general strike. It, it's complicated by the fact that there's a pandemic now, but there needs to be a general strike, and we need to have a clear list of demands that are simple, to the point, and just don't stop striking until you get it. And on that list should be Medicare for All and universal basic income for sure. Because these numbers, I'm going to have to come out here every week, every month, whatever it might be, and give you update on numbers like this, and it's heartbreaking every time, and it's devastating, and it's so difficult to really contextualize the immense pain that's out there right now. And again, nobody's working on your behalf. Okay. All right, guys, we are done. I love you all very much. I hope everybody's staying safe out there. I will talk to all of you soon on Wednesday and no. Yes. When is the debate? I think the debate is Tuesday. I'll be live tweeting the debate, so you have that to look forward to. But anyway, love you guys, and I'll talk to you soon. I'm out. Peace.